your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Y'all are Bible-toting folk, right? Got it in a hard copy, electronic copy, but you've got the Word of God with you. Y'all got your sword with you today? Amen. Listen, um, we began last week a series called Irresistible Love, and last week, if you were here, I, I talked about a few things that were irresistible. And one of the things that I mentioned were babies, and I think babies are incredibly irresistible. Again, especially other people's babies, because it's fun. You get to hold them, love on them, and then you can give them back when they're starting to cry or they got a poopy, right? So it's awesome. They're irresistible. Well, um, I was supposed to become a papa in about three weeks, uh, but this weekend I actually became a papa. Now, most of you all know this already because of social media. And I knew you'd be wondering, so I've got a few pictures, just about 30 or 40 is all. No, just kidding. Just a few pictures I want to show you real fast. This is, this is the parents and, and little Neely, Neely Kate right here, but that's really not that important. Let's go to the next slide right here. This is the one that's important right here. Is that not irresistible? Oh my goodness, she is beautiful. She's looking like me already. It's amazing. I've got a receding hairline, everything. Um, uh, next slide, and of course, this is Pam and I with our little bundle of joy that we are, we are excited about being a papa, you know, or grandparents, I should say. You know, they, they say that um, becoming a grandparent is the reward you get for not killing your children. And um, while well, I was blessed with two amazing boys, and I've got two beautiful daughter-in-loves, I'm, man, I'm excited about being a papa. Some of you have been there before, and you've been telling me, you won't believe how amazing it is, and it's true. And all she does now is just lay there and just kind of open her eyes every once in a while, and she's melting my heart. But I want to talk about irresistible love, and, and one of the things that I want to talk about is the church making Christianity irresistible once again. It, Christianity should be the most irresistible thing upon the face of the earth. When you start really understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it should become irresistible. I'm afraid, unfortunately, we have focused in the old covenant and the laws, the regulation, the do's, the don'ts, all the things that we got to try to do to get God to love us that we've made it very resistible. Not only for ourselves, but we made it resistible for other people by, by being legalistic and being mean. And it, it's amazing that the world actually still has a favorable view of Jesus, but they don't have a favorable view of his church. I think there's something that we need to tweak in our lives. There's some things that we need to adjust. And I was, I was telling the staff last week when I embarked on this series that my concern is that you will begin to think that you have to do things to get God to love you. I want to be very clear from the get-go today. You can't do anything else to make for God to love you more than he does right now. You can't do anything. And I know some of you were not raised like that, so I'm going against your perspective, your paradigm of the way you think God is. But I want you to know that John, the apostle, defined who God is by saying God is love. It's not just what he does, it's literally the essence of who he is. And when we understand it's the essence of who he is, who he is has to flow out of who he is. And when we begin to allow him to be in our lives and rule in our lives and reign in our lives, and we're not just kind of trying to work him into our lives, suddenly who he is comes out of us. And instead of people seeing you and I in our, in our dysfunctions, in our challenges, they begin to see the love of God in us. Not that we're perfect. 
but that we're beginning to grow to be more like Jesus all the time. Listen, I want to be a part of a movement that is making Christianity irresistible again. And I said this last week, we don't need everybody to do it, but we need enough of us to do it that we can begin to change the world that we live in. Eleven disciples turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Imagine if just half of us today began to do that. Well, Pastor Rich, I'm waiting for other people to change. Listen, you're going to be waiting a long time. When you recognize that you're the only one that you, you can actually make decisions for yourself on how you're going to act, it starts changing everything. You say, well, is that really true? Just think about it. Those of you that have traveled all over the United States, you recognize Amarillo is one of the friendliest cities in the world. I'm amazed, you know. I know there's a few drivers that we're still praying for, you know, that just don't quite get it. You feel me today? And, and you know, kind of working through some of that stuff. And I have to tell you, sometimes I am that person for you, so I apologize. If I cut you off ever in traffic and you're going, that's the guy. I see him now. I do apologize, but it's a friendly place. And when you travel in other parts of the country, sometimes I'm amazed at how unkind other people are and and how rude they can actually be. And what I recognize is that didn't just happen because of the fact that we have a high desert climate. It doesn't happen just because we have a little bit of wind occasionally, all right? It's happened because there's a people that made a choice to say, I want to be kind to my neighbor. I want to be loving to my neighbor. And listen, if the church, even though it was persecuted by the Jewish temple in the Roman Empire, not only survived all of that, it actually thrived and impacted the world. I want to figure out what did they do back then that we're not doing anymore. And let's figure out what we can begin to do today to do what they were doing back then. That we can change the world. See, I think the, I think the biggest challenge to it all is, is the term Christian. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because Christian basically for a lot of people today means American. If you're, if you're not a Muslim, if you're not a Hindu, then you must be a Christian. It just, you become that by default. And that's actually not true. A, a Christian, th- this was a term given to Christians originally in Antioch, and it actually means little Jesuses, that, that we're, we're like Jesus, that we're becoming like Jesus. Not that we've arrived, not that we're perfect, but every day we're a little bit more like Jesus than we were yesterday. And we're a little bit more like Jesus than we were last year. That I like, I like this term, I like Christ followers. I like, I like to identify those of us that are Christians as Christ followers, that we are following after Jesus. I hope that's what you're doing. Because I hope that you don't think Christianity is the service that we've got going on right now. Or that it's that you dress up occasionally on Sunday or that you kind of try to be kind to people. But that you understand that you are following the ways and the teachings of Jesus. Here's how Jesus defined people who are following after him. And, and again, I, I think for some of us, this is going to be a little bit of a paradigm shifting experience because the way we were raised. But here's how, here's how Jesus said it. He said, by this, and he's talking about the thing that's going to come here at the end. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Here it is. If you dress up on Sunday. If you go to church on Sunday. If you read your Bible, now those second and third one, going to church and reading your Bible, important things, but that's not the test of us being 
disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. How, are, how is everyone going to know that we're disciples of Jesus, that we're followers of Jesus, that we're in love with Jesus? Is this, if you love one another. See, our tendency to think of our relationship with God is only in a vertical focus. That it's all about me and my relationship with God. That that Christianity is to be lived out by myself and, and alone. But when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't stop and give them a commandment. He gave them commandments all as one greatest commandment. Did you notice I added the S there at the end? Commandments as the commandment. Here's, here's how he put it. Jesus replied when asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Went on to say, this is the first and greatest commandment. This, this is the vertical relationship. And when he went on, he said, and the second is like it. I, I said this last week, but I want to remind you, he wasn't saying that this is second in importance. It was only second in sequence because they're like it. And he said to love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, it isn't just the vertical focus that is important to God. He is concerned with the horizontal focus that you and I have. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And when we do these two commandments, we are actually fulfilling all of the old covenant laws and commandments. It's amazing. His teaching was giving people a heads up that something new was heading their way, that it was going to be their love for others that was going to be the best way that they could express their love for God. Listen, and I want to be clear today. I'm not saying that if you don't love others perfectly that you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. All right? None of us are perfect, and it's one of the greatest days of your life when you stop judging other people. And you stop demanding perfection from other people. Because here's what I know typically about people who demand perfection on other people. It's because they demand perfection on themselves. And they beat themselves up all the time when they miss the mark and fall short. But listen, it is our expression of loving others that is the perfect expression of our love for God. Listen, and it concerns me though when I see people that there is absolutely no evidence of them loving other people. They're unkind. They can be very mean-spirited, even saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. They can be very unkind. Listen, again, I'm not here to judge, but I want us to be aware as a church of how Jesus looks at this. And here's what Jesus said at the end of the age. At the end of the age, when he is going to set up his throne, it says this in Matthew chapter 25. It says this, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. It goes on to say that he is going to divide the sheep from the goats. He's going to divide the righteous from the unrighteous. And he will then say to the righteous, come, you who are blessed, take your inheritance, take the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And I want you to check it out and take note of what the actions were of the righteous. Here's what it says in this verse. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Whoa. Can we get out of that? Thank you. I needed clothes. Do you notice how I magically did that? 
I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Listen, the righteous are actually taken by surprise. They, they start going, okay, now when did we do that unto you? Here's what verse 40 says. And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Listen, it was their love for others expressed through actions of giving and serving was the way they expressed love for God. If you continue to read this story, what you discover about the unrighteous is that they were cast out for not loving other people like this. Listen, my point is to make you aware that Jesus is really serious about this loving one another thing. He's very serious about us loving our neighbor. His point in his greatest commandment formula is that when you obey these two commandments, you fulfill all the law and the commandments. It's amazing because Jesus came between the old covenant and the new covenant. He was the bridge between those two things. So the question that I want to unpack today and for you and I to look at today is who is our neighbor? I know there's some things that come to your mind when you think of neighbor, but as I said last week, Jesus is the first one to put together this greatest commandment formula of loving God and loving others. And the first section of loving God is actually found in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Covenant, and the second section of loving your neighbor is found in Leviticus. Now, in, if you read the passage in Leviticus, it's in chapter 19, you discover that to the Jewish people, one's neighbor was other Jewish people. So for them to love their neighbor as their self was for them to love people that were just like them or other Jewish people. But Jesus knew that he needed to broaden this understanding of neighbor if his new movement was going to have the global impact that he wanted it to have. Because Jesus said of the nation of Israel that they would be a blessing to all nations, not just the nation of Israel. So as he had done on other occasions, Jesus altered the rules and redefined terms. Here's how it happened. Shortly after episode one that I talked about last week of Stump the Rabbi, Jesus was approached again by another lawyer. Now, we all love lawyers. Amen? No, just me? Okay, we all love lawyers. But listen to this. He comes to him with another trick question. Luke is taking notes, and so Luke writes this in chapter 10. Brooke, do you mind just doing the slides if you we got this tv so that eventually we can circle things so you can really teach you and i can see i can move this i could change it like that Isn't that pretty cool y'all thought it was magical here's what it says luke chapter 10 verse 25 sorry squirrel right <laughs> on one occasion let me let me back up and say the line ahead of it again after episode one of stump the rabbi jesus is approached by another lawyer with another trick question and it says this in verse 25 on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to to test jesus teacher he asked what must i do to inherit eternal life good question right it's a really good question to ask but jesus knew that there was a question behind the question so jesus responded with a question of his own here's what he said in verse 26 What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Now, this is interesting because the lawyer recites the same verse that both he and Jesus were taught when they were growing up. But this lawyer had been paying attention to Jesus' greatest commandment formula. So here's how he responds in verse 27. He answered, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Nailed it. I'm sure he sat back, crossed his arms going, okay, Jesus, what do you got? Here's what it says in verse 28. Jesus answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the, then the lawyer shows his cards and it says this in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself So we asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? Let me give you the unabridged version of it. Here's what he's basically asking Jesus. If loving others is proof of my love for God, what is the minimum amount of love required? Who specifically do I have to love in order to obtain eternal life? And what we recognize from the lawyer is that he is wanting to walk as close to the not okay line without actually not being okay. He wants to be okay, but he wants to get up as close to that line as he possibly can. He's looking for a vertical salvation formula, not for God's sake, not for his neighbor's sake, but for himself's sake. And so we ask, himself's sake? And so we ask, and who is my neighbor? Jesus then shares a story that we've reduced to just a figure of speech, but it is a brilliant move because reaches... Jesus redefines neighbor for everyone. I have not had very much sleep this week, so almost anything is likely to come out of my mouth today, all right? How many of you here have been here long enough that you remember when I said booty call from the stage? All right. Okay, I'll share the story. I was wanting to talk about when you accidentally dial your phone and you call it a butt dial. Right, you know, but I, I didn't really want to say the word butt because I know it offends some of you. And so I said, Oh, you do a booty dial. I just do a booty dial. So I got up and I said, Yeah, you know when you do a booty call like that? And I thought I said booty dial, but I could tell from everybody's faces that I had said something wrong. You do a booty call, they're all hee hee. I should have said, God bless you, go home, because no one heard a word I said after that. Seriously. All right. So <laughs> we're there today again. So buckle up. All right. So Jesus is about ready to redefine neighbor for everyone forever. Not just just back then, not just Bible times, but for everyone forever. Here's what he says in verse 30. In, In reply, Jesus said that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And I'm sure the lawyer's thinking, I thought we were talking about neighbor. Really, that's not the neighborhood I live in. You guys know the story. Two religious leaders pass by their beating, beaten, bleeding Jewish neighbor, and they don't lift a finger to help. Listen, if God's, if Jesus' greatest commandment formula is right, these religious leaders are not loving God. They have not laid hold of eternal life. Which, by the way, can I just say this really fast? We have a tendency to think of eternal life as when we die and we go to heaven, and that is an element of eternal life. But listen, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, eternity gets put inside of you. Eternal life, it's why suddenly you feel peace, you feel joy, you feel contentment, you feel happiness. And listen, some of you remember that when you gave your life to Christ. You remember how that felt. It was so amazing. And what you did is you let the enemy steal some of the eternal life. And you bought into some lies and you begin to become unfocused in your relationship with God. And God's saying, look, eternal life dwells inside of you. 
So again, if Jesus' greatest commandment is right, these religious leaders, they're not loving God. I don't care how much they go to the temple. I don't care how much of the word of God they read. They're not loving God. They're not experiencing eternal life. Look at verse 33, but a Samaritan. I believe when Jesus said that, he probably had to pause to let the murmuring die down because I believe that most of Jesus' audience assume that Samaritans were behind the imaginary robbery and Jesus' imaginary story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. To which they thought, surely Jesus isn't going to make the Samaritan the hero in the story. But he was. Look at verse 34. And he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, took care of him. Now, to Jesus' audience, this had to seem crazy. We culturally read through this story and we don't understand the significance of what is happening here because no Samaritan that they had ever met would ever do that for another Jew. There's not. These groups didn't talk to each other, let alone touch one another. Let let me try to to put it in context for you. Listen, think about someone who doesn't look, think, act, talk, or believe like you. I'm on Facebook. Y'all too, y'all see some of the comments of Christians against other Christians that they've decided that it's for them to sit in judgment of some of their behavior. Listen, you, you got some issues with me. I don't mind you if you're in my life and you love me to come talk to me and hang out with me and say, hey, hey, something that you're doing concerns me. But listen, when it's somebody you don't hardly know, and, and, and even if you do know them, don't put it on Facebook. So think about this a moment. Somebody who doesn't look, think, talk, act, or believe like you. Think about somebody that you don't understand why they do what they do. Think about somebody that might make you angry, might really kind of get your blood boiling. Maybe it's somebody who has different religious beliefs than you. Whether it's they're a a Muslim and we think, well, I'm supposed to actually hate them. No, we are supposed to love people of all races and ages and religions. We are. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but we love them. Think about somebody who has different political beliefs than you. They're conservative or they're liberal. I know some of you, man, you just start going to town. You start talking about somebody that has a different political view. And, man, you, I just see the fire come up in your eyes. Maybe it's just the people in the first service. Unfortunately, still race. We, we love people of all races. Financial status. Because there's some of you, you don't have money, you get mad at people that do. There's some of you do have money, you get mad at people that don't. When, when I'm talking about Samaritans and Jews, that's what I'm talking about. Somebody that you totally disagree with. And listen to this, verse 35. And it says, the next day, to which Jesus' audience must have thought, the next day, are you kidding me? The next day, he took out two denarii. Just real quick to remind you what a denarii was. A denarii is a day's wage. If you make $25,000 a year, that's about $100 a day. This man gives him $200, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you have. Listen, this was so over the top for them to try to understand what Jesus is talking about when he's saying neighbor. In fact, they're feeling like they should not 
have to spend this imagination on a story that's designed to obviously distract them from an answer that Jesus does not have an answer for. But once they settled down, Jesus did something that they wouldn't live long enough to appreciate. He redefined neighbor forever for everyone. Jesus brought the definition of neighbor to include people who don't look like you, think like you, act like you, believe like you. Again, the significance of this parable is often so overlooked because we've reduced it to a figure of speech, but Jesus defined neighbor and changed it forever. This was brand new. And to be quite honest with you, it challenges all of us because everyone knows the answer to Jesus' closing question in verse 36 when he says this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The answer is obvious. The implications of the answer, not quite so much. Because you see, there's actually a question behind Jesus' question. Here's what Jesus' question was. Who had loved the Lord God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his mind? Who had laid claim to eternal life? I personally believe that the lawyer paused before he answered. And the reason why I think that is because once he knew that he answered that question, he knew that he would be responsible for his answer. Verse 37, it says, And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Listen, apparently he couldn't even utter the ethnic identity of the hero in the story, but it was the Samaritan. The Samaritan is the one that showed mercy. The Samaritan is the one who had obtained eternal life. So in the next verse, verse 37 again, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As I said earlier, for every one of us, this is brand new. Jesus had redefined neighbor for everyone forever. Neighbor love would no longer be defined as people who are just near to us or people who are like us. Neighbor love would be for everyone and anyone. Our neighbor love was evidence of God love. Our love for others would be the proof of our love for God. Y'all hearing that? Let me say that again. Our neighbor love was evidence of God love. Our love for others would be the proof of our love for God. See, Jesus was in transition. He was moving us from the old covenant where love for God was defined by our obedience or by adherence to the law. But to the new covenant, in the new covenant mindset, where love for others would be the litmus test of our love for God. Where love for those that we could see would be the proof of love for a God that we couldn't see. And it's our love for other people, many of whom don't look like us, think like us, act like us, or believe like us, that's the proof that we're actually a follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus asked this, or said this, how will people know that you're a a follower of Jesus Christ? Put that verse up there. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. Let me close with, with this question. In light of what we've heard today, how should you and I express love to God? How can you and I express love to God? Do we do it when our feelings and emotions just get right? Then we express love to God? Meaning we come into a worship service and if we feel it and they hit the right note, we have the right song, oh yeah, God, I love you. 
when we, when we feel like being kind because, man, we've, we've got plenty of sleep and we're, we're in a good mood. We've had something to eat, so we're not hangry. That, that we can be kind and we can be loving to other people and we can do it when we feel it. Or, or are we expressing love to God by obeying him and, and doing all the rules and the regulations and, and we're struggling, but yeah, God, I'm going to love people whether they like it or not. Is it that or is it by putting the people around you ahead of you? By loving on them, by giving to them and serving them and expressing the love of God that's in you to them. It's our horizontal love for others that is the ultimate proof of our vertical love for God. It's our horizontal love for others that prove that we are followers of Jesus Christ. I want to say this again. Listen, I know it's a little challenging. I I know that it can be a little difficult because we want to live by how we feel. We want to live by our emotions in the moment and hey, I'll love you if you'll love me. You don't love me, I'm not loving you. Listen, if we want to make Christianity irresistible again, and listen, all of us want to live in that irresistible environment. Most of us just aren't willing to take the time to actually change ourselves to make that irresistible environment work in the first place. And I'm telling you, if we'll make the choice to do it, we can change the world forever. And listen, don't be looking to the person on your right, left, and front, and back of you. Except to say, you know what, I want to put you in front of me by loving on you in every way that I possibly can. How does all this start, Richie? It starts by you simply receiving the love of God in your life. When you start to get a a hold of how perfectly and how deeply God loves you, that he loves you in your best moments, he loves you in your worst moments, that God isn't ever, ever, ever looking at you like this. He he never has a disappointed look on his face because there's not anything that you and I ever do that ever takes him by surprise. And in all of that, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for every one of our sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And if we will daily receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, we will reign in life, meaning we'll reign over our feelings, we'll reign over our emotions, we'll reign over other people's bad attitudes, and we'll allow the love of God to flow in us and flow out of us and change the world that God's, that God's place us in.